Welcome to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology whilst talking about our own personal experiences. This week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Tessa Charlesworth, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Harvard University and the University of Toronto. She's also an incoming assistant professor at the Kellogg School of Management. On this episode, we talked about how prejudices and attitudes change over time. Tessa shared research on two specific methods that she's used to investigate this change. First, she uses a task called the Implicit Association Task, which we refer to in the podcast as the IAT. This allows researchers to get a gauge of people's implicit prejudices or the ones that we're not necessarily consciously aware of. And this task is one that is arguably harder to control your responses to than, say, being asked how prejudiced you are in a questionnaire. What's really cool about this is that she uses a database called Project Implicit that has 20 million respondents and has been collecting data for almost 20 years. So she can really examine attitude change on a really fine-grained level. We also talk about how prejudices are embedded into broader cultural products. The research that Tessa does for this uses a method called word embeddings in natural language processing, which is borrowed from computer science and artificial intelligence. This basically creates a mathematical representation of words, which are also called vectors. In non-technical words, this just allows her to examine what words and traits are associated with different racial groups, for example, over time in big cultural products, such as the books that we read. Hi, I'm Tessa Charlesworth. I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher at Harvard University and the University of Toronto, and I'll soon be starting as a faculty member at Kellogg School of Management. And in terms of my research, I'm interested in how and why we change our attitudes and our stereotypes about social groups. And the key word there really is change. So why is it that some of our biases and our attitudes and our representations move us towards more acceptance? of some people over history, whereas other kinds of biases actually become less tolerant and even hostile over history. So what is it about our minds and our, the actual mental representations? But also equally important, what is it about the kind of social structures and the settings across history that can give rise to more or less change over time? So one of the really cool things about your work is that you kind of move away from the traditional psychology type of research and analysis. Mm -hmm. So typically when we think psychology, we think getting people into the lab, maybe having a confederate, so like an actor kind of messing with people and then seeing what happens or maybe running some online studies where you have a specific question and a specific sample that you're using to do that. But in your work, you really don't do much of that. And one of the first things that I wanted to talk about is work that you do with a constantly open website where people are able to kind of just take tests for fun. So I was just wondering if you could talk about Project Implicit and also discuss the main test that is administered on Project Implicit, which is the Implicit Association Test. Yeah, so Project Implicit is a nonprofit that was founded by Mazarin Banaji, so my advisor, as well as her student, Brian Nosick, and her advisor, Tony Greenwald. And together, they had developed this test called the Implicit Association Test, which, as some of your listeners will know, is basically a in-time test. So the easiest way I think about the IAT, or the kind of idea behind the IAT, is when it comes to sorting a deck of cards. It's very easy to sort a deck of cards based on color. That's just like automatic, easy, fast, congruent associations that you can do. It's a lot harder if I asked you to say sort clubs and hearts to one side and diamonds and spades to the other side. That's less congruent and a little bit harder for you to do by just relying on automatic reactions. So the IAT is actually a very similar kind of task. We basically have you sort 
social group and attributes, so good and bad, for instance. And a congruent task might be, you know, old and bad to one side and young and good to another side. And an incongruent task, the one we'll do a, a comparison with on your speed, would be something like good and old and bad and young. And we can use the difference in the reaction time to see how automatically biased you are about those two kinds of associations. So they developed this task back in 1998 and immediately thought, I wonder if we could just put it online for some demonstrations for other educators, other researchers to use, having no idea that it would really break the internet and blow up in the way that it has. Because a couple of years ago, when I checked, we had 20 million people who had taken the IAT through this website. And it's since exploded. This was also pre-2020. So it's since exploded throughout the pandemic following the murder of George Floyd. So I'm assuming we probably have, you know, at least 30 million people at this point who have come onto this website and taken these tasks. And the cool thing about the website is because it was put on shortly after the development of the test, it was put on in the early 2000s, we have really rich time series data. So really rich data on these kinds of automatic attitudes that have been collected now over two decades. So that's basically where knowing about this data was where my first projects in grad school really started. That was actually a stats midterm project where we had to use some sort of existing data set. And all of my existing data sets at the time were, you know, 20 kids. I was trained as a developmental psychologist. So it was like 20 children and we couldn't do really like fancy methods to them or anything like that. It was basically a t-test or a chi-square test. And so knowing that this data set existed, I thought, why not play around and see whether there are any interesting trends that have happened over this long-term time span of 20 years. And the first trends that we started to see, my advisor, Mazarin Banaji, didn't believe them. I was showing this drop in implicit racial attitudes over time. And she was like, that can't be right. We know that implicit attitudes do not change over time. Implicit attitudes, these kinds of tests that we get through the IAT, are thought to be super stable. They're called cognitive monsters. They're automatic habits, all these things they can't change over time. And so we went back and we tried another task, sexuality. And sexual orientation biases have also dropped by even greater degrees. So at this stage now, up to the end of 2020, by 78% drop. And so it was, you know, already we were looking from the stats midterm project of seeing Turns out these implicit biases, when we're thinking about them at this really long historical timescale over this much more aggregated level of analysis, like across our population, maybe they could change in a very different way from how exactly as you described, how we might typically think of attitude change in an experiment, in the lab, one or two time points for a single individual. And then, of course, the last question that we asked is, okay, is this the case that implicit attitudes are always going to change? Or is this something just unique about maybe race and sexual orientation, which are unique in many ways in our society? They're attitudes that we talk about a lot. They're attitudes that we've prioritized through protest, through legislation, through media representation. And so we tested a, a few other attitudes, including implicit biases about age, disability, and body weight. And those three tasks, or those three tests, the three biases, have not changed on our implicit attitudes. So that, again, told us a little bit more about the likely sources of where those changes had been coming from, things like those unique features of race and sexual orientation relating to the kinds of protests and media representations that aren't going to extend to every single group in our society. It's not that we have this massive wave of just societies becoming nicer over time and society no longer has implicit biases. 
it's really only for some groups and only in some ways. So that was a long-winded answer, but that's Project Implicit and the like first, first papers that have kind of come out with that data, looking at change in a much more macro level approach to understanding. So have you compared the implicit attitudes to explicit attitudes? So for the things that didn't change in the implicit attitudes, like ageism and stuff like that, are there changes in explicit attitudes or is it also kind of reflecting this thing that we don't really talk about it so people don't maybe care about it as much anyway? Explicit attitudes have been changing for all three of those topics of age, disability, and body weight. And so, you know, I mentioned something about this. It's not the case that we have this massive wave of society becoming less biased. Actually, we do on explicit measures. So when it comes to explicit biases, every single topic we've looked at has dropped in bias over time. And that, again, really is pointing to the source of those explicit bias changes. That is, when it comes to explicit bias change, it does seem to be this wave of what we might call a wave of social desirability concerns. So a wave in which people are becoming more and more concerned with saying things like, I don't like old people, or I don't like people with disabilities, or, or whatnot. And they're dropping in those biases over time. But that's not the case for implicit, right? So there isn't a same kind of wave that's affecting are implicit biases because those tests aren't as vulnerable to self-presentation and social desirability concerns. So we can actually see a really interesting dissociation in the likely sources of these changes, depending on which measure we're looking at. So I guess this is kind of hopeful. <laughs> I mean, the fact that we've been really trying to change some of these attitudes, there have been a lot of protests. It still feels like in like body weight and body shaming, there's mm -hmm. a lot of talk about that, I guess, at least online. So I guess I'm wondering if you could pinpoint exactly what it is about certain types of movements. Is it just that they're mm -hmm. more in the discourse? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I'm excited to continue studying at Kellogg because there are really amazing social movement scholars there. So I'm sure they'll, you know, collaborating with sociologists and people who specifically study social movements, I think will be a great path forward to identify what are those features that characterized the same-sex marriage movement and Black Lives Matter movement that weren't present in the body positivity movement, for instance, or in the disability rights movement as well. Now there's, so yes, I think when it comes to social movements, that clearly can't be the whole story because you're exactly right. There are parallel social movements that have happened for these other identities, although to a lesser degree, you know, there hasn't been the same kind of movement that we see with like pride's pro pride protests or Black Lives Matter movements, for instance. There is another factor that does distinguish these groups, though, that could be another sort of key ingredient that we might need. And that is that those three groups, age, disability, and body weight, are all stigmas or all social groups that are physical. And they're kind of read on the body in a really particular way that we maybe don't think about as much with sexuality and race, which are much more socially constructed, much more kind of in the, the social milieu. And there are really interesting theories from the stigma literature, which comes more from public health, about how those different, that, that distinction between more body-related stigmas and more socio-demographic-related stigmas might serve different functions in our society. So socio-demographic stigmas like race, for instance, often serves a function of kind of keeping people down and getting our resources and resource domination, whereas a, a body-related stigma like age and disability 
are thought to reflect functions that are more about sort of pathogen avoidance or like keeping people away that might have something that's, you know, harmful to our health or harmful to our ideas of, of well-being. And so those different functions of stigma might make them differentially malleable when it comes to change over time. It might be really hard to change a stigma that we think is like fundamentally tied into health and well-being versus a stigma like sexuality and race that we might think is more tied to, you know, resources or, or dominance or power or something like that. That's an open empirical question, so I don't have the answer, but it is another kind of axis that divides those groups above and beyond just protests. I'm going to ask you to speculate on this yeah. <laughs> a little more. So I'm just thinking about the differences between groups of sexuality, race versus something like disability or weight. Mm-hmm. I feel like with disability and weight, those are things that that could happen to anyone. Yeah. Whereas like race or sexuality, although they're socially constructed in a sense, they're not really changeable. So I was just wondering, do you think that plays into it as well, that maybe there's more of like a fear attached to it mm-hmm. for people and that leads to more stigma that is more immovable? Yes, I think absolutely. It's another big factor. And there are methods that we're trying to do now to, to test these hypotheses. So, and we'll hopefully talk about them a little bit later. But, you know, right now, the reason why we can't perfectly quantify all the factors that might contribute to some groups changing and others not. So protests, whether it's body related, whether it's changeable or controllable, whether there's kind of a risk that you might assume that identity. And so you want to push it away and avoid it. All of those features are things that we can speculate and kind of do back of the envelope calculations on across the six groups that we've looked at so far. But what we would need to actually quantitatively test that is a much bigger sample size of groups that vary along those dimensions to basically give us the actual variance that we would need in change to then explain based on different features. Obviously, we can't do that with the kind of archival attitude data because we just can't go back and tell researchers from the 2000s, like, it'd be great if you collected some data on wheelchair-bound stigma, or it'd be great if you collected some data on, like, smoking stigma. Unfortunately, we don't have that. But what we do have is text and language. So one of the new methods that we've been developing is how do we extract these same kinds of stereotypes and representations and biases through language? Because that just opens the door to being able to now study as many groups as we want across really as long a time span as we have language for. And we've just started to to do that and to actually map out the space of how these different groups are changing. And then what we can do now is look at some of those correlates. So how are groups rated on the perceived changeability or the perceived risk of their identity? How are they rated in terms of perceived threat or perceived peril? And then see whether that predicts the degree to which they change over time. I don't know if you can do this with the data that you have, but because you're tracking these changes over time and there are certain big changes that happen societally or that just happen in the news, for example, that can both seemingly push forward social movements, but also kind of bring them back. So I'm thinking, Mm. obviously, like the election of Barack Obama. There's also during the time of your data collection, the Supreme Court ruling that same-sex marriage should be legalized. On the flip side, you know, there's been presidents in the past that have said things that are maybe a little bit counter to the feminist movement, for example, or very disparaging things about migrants and things like that. Mm. So I was just wondering, do you see that reflected in the data? And is there differences between how positive things that might decrease bias or legislation that might decrease bias 
influence the data versus negative things that might pull things back? Yeah, those are extremely rich and interesting questions that, again, can't wait to continue exploring. (laughs) We do have our group and some other researchers have, you know, kind of done one-off tests for individual attitudes to test some of those ideas. So Eugenio Fuso and Eric Heyman have a great paper on same-sex marriage legislation, and they find that implicit sexuality biases really do show an inflection point following that legislation at the federal level, but also earlier at the state level. So if you were in a state, say like Massachusetts, that legalized in 2005, you actually get a little bit of an inflection point there already. So you start decreasing in sexuality bias already in 2005. And then that just gets another inflection point in 2016. So what's interesting about that is we're seeing the positive snowballing influence, if you will, of both sort of more local and more federal legislation. So there is some evidence that you can have external impacts that create positive change in attitudes. However, there's also data from our own group showing that you can have external impacts that create negative changes in attitudes. So the kinds of rhetoric that, you know, started with Trump's early presidency and the Republican primaries about disability as well as about body weight and about race we see actually sharp increases for about a year immediately following that kind of change in rhetoric in the public consciousness. And we specifically see it in those groups that Trump targeted. So Trump rarely targeted LGB individuals, so lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals. And so we don't really see any increase. In fact, if anything, we see a slightly sharper drop in sexuality bias, perhaps because of other phenomena like transfer prejudice and those kinds of things. But for the groups that Trump did target, so disability, when he targeted the New York Times reporter and kind of mocked him, body weight, when he shamed public figures about being overweight, when he called Miss America a fat pig, those kinds of things, those shaming events do seem to align with these particular increases and particularly amongst conservative states and particularly amongst conservative respondents which tell us that it really is something about this kind of emboldening of rhetoric or this emboldening of prejudice amongst those particular groups that might be most sort of exposed to those structural level or rhetoric level changes that do create this negative impact on our biases. Now, I will say, like you did have such a, like the question really is how do those two impacts of positive change or negative change, how do they differ from one another? And for me, like a really interesting question is how long does a positive change last and how long does a negative change last? You know, in psychology, there are tons of theories about the unique power of negativity. It's so much easier to make someone think negative thoughts than it is to make them think positive thoughts, for instance. So it becomes an open question at the kind of more societal or macro level of our attitudes, whether that is also the case, whether it's that much easier to quickly create negative change and push people away from progress than it is to motivate them to become more accepting of a group. And so I think that's a super interesting and ripe area for future work. I just wanted to ask, because what you said about the implicit changes Mm -hmm. after something like, you know, Donald Trump saying something horrible, I guess that's in a sense surprising because the rhetoric that we usually hear around Uh, What happened during the Trump presidency is like, oh, this was all here implicitly. Mm -hmm. And now people are able to express it explicitly. 
but right. kind of with your data, it's like it's every level. Do you have data on whether explicitly there was the same pattern? Yeah. No, interestingly. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we do have data, but there were no explicit changes during Trump's presidency. So the only place we're seeing these kinds of bumps in bias are on implicit. Wow. And so the story that one might tell there from a more psychological perspective is that, you know, at a population level, we're probably not seeing that much of this emboldening effect of like people on average, you know, yes, it is true that there's an emboldening effect, especially for more extreme right-wing people. Like they didn't exist and didn't have the kind of public endorsement that they do now. However, when it comes to the average American or the average U.S. resident, it seems to be that actually, you know, our explicit biases don't change that much. We're equally reticent to say negative things about another group during Trump's presidency. However, we are continuously, we are more exposed during Trump's presidency to these kinds of reminders about the negative association between, say, being overweight and badness. Because we're listening to the rhetoric, because we're more exposed to these right-wing commentators, because we're seeing these kinds of negative media representations that just weren't allowed from the extreme anymore. And so because the average American is now exposed to these new associations just hanging out in our daily lives, that's going to sh shift our implicit attitudes, even if it doesn't shift our explicit attitudes. So there's been some criticism of the IAT in general and particularly one that I find interesting, but that I think actually could embolden your work mm -hmm. is is the criticism that the IAT actually doesn't necessarily measure an individual's prejudice, but measures cultural prejudice, which I think kind of mm -hmm. goes along really well with what you just said about, oh, you're intaking that information more and you just have that implicit association more quickly. So I guess, what exactly are you measuring with the IAT? Are you measuring mm -hmm. cultural just norms and prejudice or are you mm -hmm. measuring changes in the population over time? And like, how different are those two things? Yeah, it's a great question as well. The What I think about when I think about the IET, and especially what we're measuring in our work when we aggregate across people, is really this kind of like average thumbprint of the culture on the average mind. So it really is some combination between individual influences and cultural influences. And another kind of analogy that I often think about when thinking about the IAT is sort of like a lens where an individual will each bring their own prescription, their own like visual prescription, their own visual lens to filtering the information from their culture. So they're all seeing the same scene and they're all going to be influenced by that same scene. But there are also some individual differences in the degree to which you incorporate and sort of endorse that information. And so what becomes a really interesting empirical question going forward, and I think we're moving in that direction now that, you know, Keith Payne's bias of crowds model has been proposed, is to really try and partial out how much and where and when are there these kinds of more individual endorsed components of the IAT and how much and when and where are these, there are these more cultural components. So I think that's, when I think about the IAT and what it's measuring, it's definitely some combination between the two. And it becomes really interesting to think about how to empirically pull those two apart. Your question, though, about sort of like, is it cultural norms or is it other changes in the population? Again, it's another empirical question. And I think the best way to, to test those is to look at other indicators of cultural norms or other indicators of kind of like media and expressions and representation 
and see how much our, our measures of IAT related change or attitude related change are tracking with those societal level indicators. And if they're exactly the same and they're perfectly correlated, then we can say, you know, there's a really strong linkage. It's probably picking up similar, like it's probably picking up almost entirely those kinds of cultural changes and exposure or cultural events. But if there's at least some dissociation, then we might have to ask, okay, what else could the IAT be picking up above and beyond things like media representation changes? You know, if it's, it's with a more moderate correlation and controlling for measurement error, we might ask, okay, is, could it be something else like changes in the demographics of the population? Like, is this just young people replacing old people, for instance? And we want to partial that out next. And then we ask, okay, cool, could this be individual people changing their minds? And then we partial that out. So I think it really, again, you know, it's a long-winded answer because it's such a rich question that essentially gets to why is change happening and what is the change that you're seeing? And for me, that's basically my whole research future is parceling out those various pieces that are contributing to this one indicator of change over time. So if people go on to Project Implicit and yep. do one of these IITs and it shows that they're pretty biased, what should they do? Do you think that's an indicator mm. of like, hmm, like something's going on here. Maybe I should question this a bit. Or can they say, oh, I guess the culture is just kind of influencing me here. Yes. I think if you go on to Project Implicit and you get the likely result, because, you know, 60 something percent of people will get a result that shows that they have some degree of bias that says, you know, you moderately associate black Americans with bad and white Americans with good, for instance. I think you can make two conclusions. One, sort of reevaluate your diet of media and of culture and see what are the things that you might be inadvertently reinforcing for yourself through your, the choices that you make in the kinds of exposures that you have. So you might, you know, choose to reevaluate your television watching habits of like, why don't you watch some black documentaries? Why don't you watch some like cool, like dear black people, like comedies and stuff like that, as well as what you're reading, as well as the kinds of friends you're exposed to and those kinds of things. So you can, you can make a cultural attribution, but that also doesn't mean that you're off the hook, that you can say, well, it just means that the culture needs to change because ultimately you are a consumer of that culture and you can look to different kinds of consumption patterns. And then I think above and beyond that, you can also do a second thing, which is to evaluate how you yourself might be sort of filtering that information. So say, even if you have this perfect balanced exposure across groups and you're like really intentionally trying to watch black documentaries, continue to evaluate yourself and audit yourself in a way of like, when you're watching those documentaries, are you discounting the stories that you're seeing in ways like saying, oh, well, yeah, that's just that's just a one-off case. You know, Barack Obama was just a really unique Black American. He's not representative of the broader community. So what are the kinds of like cognitive habits and cognitive trip, tricks that you are doing so that you're filtering that information in a way that might align with your biases? So again, it's kind of, like I said, the IAT, because it can pick up on both that like lens or that filtering as well as the culture itself, when you get a score that says something about the degree of bias you have, it's really an opportunity to look at both sources, the individual and the culture. So when I talk about this stuff, this is way more Ava's area of science than mine, so I'm a bit new to it. But 
One of the things I was thinking about when I was listening to Tessa's research about these implicit biases we have, so the biases we're not aware that we have, how that then plays out in discrimination, because I guess there's discrimination that people are aware of doing. Like, I don't know if you don't support gay marriage, that's a clear, I don't support gay marriage, I don't support gay people, and it's explicit that that's what they believe. But I was thinking, well, how does this implicit kind of, I guess, discrimination would play out and maybe in these ways that are not so clear. So maybe when also understanding in, I don't know, workplaces or schools, how that is for someone who's being discriminated against, but the people don't think they are because they're not aware they have this bias, what that may look like. And maybe this is one of the complications when it's implicit. Because then how do you name if someone's doing something but they're so unaware of it because it's implicit? How do they then learn from that or how do you name that? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Ava, or any examples or because it's your area, any studies that look at how that plays out? Well, I think, and just for the record, Beth and I just discuss these. We come in hot live and we don't really talk about what we're going to talk about. So This is just off the top. But I think one thing that's important to keep in mind about biases and that really changed the way that at least I thought about biases was the fact that honestly, like no matter what we do, the most anti-racist person, whether you're black, whether you're Asian, whether you're white, whether you're Middle Eastern, you're going to be biased because as Tessa talks about in her research, we just absorb a ton of bias from our environment. So it's in everything that we read. It's in the way that parents interact with their kids. It's probably in the way that your parents interacted with you when you were a baby, right? And I think that for me, some of the most interesting research has been about just kind of realizing that you're biased, which can happen like, let's say, if as Tess and I talked about, if you take an IAT and you see you're super biased against LGBTQ people or something, you might want to think about why that is. And even if it's coming out in this sort of implicit way, you might want to be able to just kind of reframe, as she was saying, the media diet that you're consuming. But there is some cool social neuroscience research that looks at the ways that people can kind of control biased impulses. And these are things that happen to me as well. Like sometimes I'll catch myself automatically saying he when I'm talking about someone's doctor Mm -hmm. and they'll be like, actually, it was a woman. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look at me, right? So that, that happens to all of us, even like Beth and I who are in STEM. But so when you realize that there's a few things that can happen and there's three kind of main parts that people talk about in terms of what goes into realizing that there's a bias that needs to be regulated. So first, our brains have to detect that there's a mismatch between our motivations to act in an egalitarian way and biased behavior or just biased thoughts. And the first step is implemented by a brain region called the dorsal anterior cingulate. But then when you stop the biased response, that requires another region called the inferior frontal gyrus. And then after that, after you've actually stopped the response, so our first part was just realizing that we were making a biased response, stopping that response, and then actually replacing our response with an egalitarian one. That's linked to another region of the brain in the prefrontal cortex, but it's the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, so more like the top of the brain. And so knowing these processes and breaking it down, at least for me, when I read this research in terms of almost the computations that your brain is doing, right? Like realizing it, stopping it, replacing it. I think knowing those brain regions that are involved kind of helped me be like, okay, those are the things that I would need to do almost like 
therapy for myself, being like, these are the things that we need to do to change these things. And so I think, you know, over 2020 and the rise and unfortunately fall of BLM, I think we realized that there's a lot of discrimination, at least depending on like how you took all of that. I know some people didn't really take that to heart and still argue that that is not real. But I think most of us do realize that there's a lot of discrimination that happens by accident in some ways. But I think when we call it implicit bias and when we call it by accident, that allows us to pretend that it is kind of like Mm -hmm. a feature of how we are, that it's just taking in this statistical information. So we're kind of almost being rational in it. And I think that that takes away responsibility. So I think research that shows the way that we can actually stop those biases really helps for me realize it's okay to have biases, but you just have to continuously work on not letting that control your behavior or Mm -hmm. the way you're interacting with people. Yeah. So I did this thing recently. It's a mental health first aid training that we have in Australia and I'm obsessed with it and I'm telling everyone to do it. It's basically rather than physical first aid, it's mental health first aid. So you can help people if they're having certain issues and it's amazing. And I was telling all my friends about it and one of my friends went and did it. And one of the exercises you do in the course is you have a list of mental health conditions. So like post-traumatic stress, depression, schizophrenia, all these different things. And and you also have a list of conditions like cancer, diabetes, and they get all the research and you have to put them on match. So how debilitating are these? How much do they impair someone's ability to live a healthy life? And you have to match the physical condition with the mental health condition. So just say, for example, If you have depression, does it impair your ability to live a good life the same way having diabetes would? And is that the same level? And it's a really good exercise because it makes you realize how much if you have a mental health problem that really, even though physically, of course, we don't see it, it really does stop people being able to do things that they would want to do. And I was speaking to my friend about this and she said, like, obviously, she never has consciously been like, people with mental health are fine and they're making it up and they can all be okay. And she said the minute she did this task, she really couldn't, she really was aware of like, oh, wow, I was so, I was really underestimating without realizing it, the severity of these things for people. But she said she would have never identified with doing that because she is someone who cares and all of these things. But it wasn't until she did this exercise that she realized, oh, wait, even though I was thinking I was understanding how these conditions affected people, I wasn't at all. Because when she came across that data and had to do this task, she had to completely update the way she was perceiving this. But she said, I guess that's the problem when it's an unconscious bias. <laughs> you're, you're unaware of it. But it, yeah, so I wonder if there's exercises like that you can do where it becomes very clear, like, oh, this is, this is how I'm misperceiving this, I guess. So one of the things that you talked about in your answers to the Project Implicit stuff was this idea of the broader culture that we're Mm -hmm. absorbing. And you mentioned already that you've been looking at the way that our text and different corpora that we take in can also tell us what's going on in the culture. So this is a technique that's called natural language processing that's been used more in computer science that now some psychologists like you who are interested in cool methods have now been taking advantage of. So could you just talk a little bit more about what NLP is, our natural language processing, and what word embeddings are, and how you've been using that in your research. So these are tools, as you mentioned, developed in computer science that were really trying to figure out how do we represent word meaning, so like a dictionary definition of a word, using only numbers. 
So how do we go beyond the qualitative to make it quantitative? And the key insight was actually in the like mid 1900s with this idea that any word meaning could be represented based on how a word co-occurs with other words. So like the fact that the word tree often occurs with the word leaf tells us something about the word's meaning. Tree is somehow related to the meaning of the word leaf, for instance. So the key insight for like social psychologists like me to apply some of those methods came in 2016 when now my collaborator, Eileen Kaliskan, developed this tool called the Word Embeddings Association Test, which essentially took those quantitative vectors of word meaning. So every word has this long, you know, 300 length vectors of numbers. And it said, can we look at the relative association between words used to describe groups like old and young and words used to describe attributes like good and bad, for instance. So it's exactly parallel in idea to the IAT, the implicit association test. But here, all we're doing is instead of looking at reaction times, we're looking at the kind of quantitative vector representations of those words. And what was really cool from that paper that Eileen published in Science was that the same, the same magnitudes and the same presence of biases about race, about age, about gender, that we had documented through project implicit data appeared in our large scale internet language and appeared in these like massive corpora of text, 840 billion words. And that was sort of the first like validation door opening project that basically set all of our wheels in motion in this lab, looking at where we are very familiar with the IAT to be like, oh my goodness, we need to start studying language as well because it just completely expands our toolkit. And so some of the first projects that we ran were, again, kind of in the, in the sense of validation studies of can we map on the biases that we know we should find in language as well. And for me, again, trained as a developmentalist, so I was intimately familiar with the kind of developmental work on gender stereotypes and how early those develop amongst children and how they are really deeply embedded in children's culture. So children's books, children's TV shows, children's conversations. And so as our first study using these kinds of methods, we wanted to look at how these biases that we could reveal in language might map on to the biases that we know exist amongst children. And so what we did is we basically took all of these massive corpora of children's child-directed language, so children's books, children's TV shows, and children's conversations with their parents, as well as the adult equivalents, and then assessed whether we could find gender stereotypes in those naturalistic languages. So we looked at whether there was a stronger association of women to home and men to work, and women to arts and men to science, women to good and men to bad, and then women to reading and men to math. So these are kind of like four very common stereotypes and attitudes. Turns out that in all of these corpora, towards children, so all of these text sources that children were consuming, we find evidence of these gender stereotypes. And so that was actually, you know, it's super surprising, super interesting in the sense of being able to replicate known psychological effects and known sociological effects with these large scale language models. And now it's like, once we had that, once we had additional confidence, once we had additional skills in applying those methods, it then again, just opened the door to a vast number of inquiries going forward. So in that project, that was specifically mm -hmm. looking only at children's corpora? Yeah, we had both. So we had children's corpora 
And then for comparison, we also had adult directed corpora. So we had, you know, Nickelodeon and PBS TV shows, but then also shows like CSI Miami and CSI LA and all of those things for adults as well. And in general, we found some differences when it came to trait level stereotypes. So the degree to which an adult corpus might reveal an association of women to friendly, for instance, that was often stronger and more elaborated in the adult corpora. But when it came to those four big domains of gender stereotypes of math versus science and reading versus, or math versus reading and arts versus science, those were consistent across the adult and the child corpora. Mm, that's, that's disturbing. <laughs> it is. It is, especially when you think about, so one of the corpora that, or one of the corpora that we looked at was this corpus called the child's language corpus, which is a massive corpora of child and parent conversation. So naturalistic conversations that are recorded in a home often of just things like what children and, children and parents are talking about when they're brushing their teeth or making dinner together or whatever. Those are the mean age of children in those corpora is two years of age. And we found biases in the kind of adult language, parent language for those corpora at that time. The mean age of children in those corpora is two years of age. So really, really young kids, their parents speaking to them at two years of age already contained the kinds of biases of associating, say, men with science and women with arts. So it was, it's, you know, it's in line with what we've already seen in the literature in terms of this early prevalence of gender stereotypes. It was just showing it at a scale that we didn't really realize was possible because it's now, you know, in this kind of real world context of naturalistic conversations, naturalistic TV shows, millions of these. Even there, when we expand the scope beyond the lab, we're seeing the prevalence of these biases. Yeah, that's really scary. I remember there was also, I forget the researcher who does it, but there's these, this researcher, I think a few decades ago, who took videos of people interacting with babies. Mm -hmm. They were told that it was a boy baby or girl baby. And like every time they'd hold the boy, I'd be like, you're so strong. Yeah. The girl would be like, you're so pretty. Yeah. So I guess it's not surprising, but still, yeah. Nonetheless, disturbing. disturbing. <laughs> exactly. And the fact, you know, in that study, we didn't have tons of power to be able to look at change over time. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we were able to see, you know, the book corpus, the children's book corpus were, you know, from the early 1900s. So it's kind of understandable that books would reveal these kinds of gender stereotypes. But the TV show corpus, that was from the like 2000s. And you kind of have this hope that a lot of television shows might have kind of modernized in a way that they represent women over time and, and gender roles over time. But the fact that those were showing, you know, slightly weakened prevalence of stereotypes, but nonetheless still present in the, the, the stereotypes and still present in the kind of gendered associations. To me, that was maybe the more depressing finding of maybe we've come less far than we had hoped we would over time. So another thing I was thinking about when you guys were talking about children's literature and these ideas about men and women and warmth and how those ideas are so involved in so many books that we read and things like that. It was also, oh, women are not good at maths. I know all those kind of classic things that we think about. It was funny because as Ava and I are obviously in STEM and we don't believe these 
things, but I was thinking there's so many things I do within STEM that kind of relate back to me believing those things. So I definitely feel like I should tone down my warmth. (laughs) It's interesting and I feel that when I'm in this environment, I need to not be maybe as caring and these kind of things because I won't be seen as smart, like regardless of what my work is doing. And I I guess I'd never made that connection that, okay, that's probably to do tied with being a woman and we have that association with being more warm. I mean, I have also been told before <laughs> that I should tone that down. So it's also something that I've been told by someone in this environment that maybe it's not not as good to be, to be like that. But in other workplaces, because I've worked in other places, not as a scientist, that hasn't been a problem at all. I've worked in retail environments. I worked at a local council and no one ever said, oh, you know what? I think maybe you should tone it down on the the love. (laughs) I think it does sound like picking up these these sorts of qualities that are implicitly linked to femininity, like warmth and maybe not making that link. I think that just shows this implicit nature of these biases is that You don't even realize that it's really tied to your identity as a woman, but potentially you might still feel that kind of threat if you were asked about it. There are studies like this. If someone were to tell you, oh, you shouldn't act that way or be as warm or show as many emotions as you normally would, that maybe you would also feel more threatened because you're a woman and kind of feel the weight of that stereotype. There's a lot of research, like classic social psychology research on this idea of social identity threat about women in STEM and math specifically. So it's a Claude Steele classic work from the 90s showing that when you give women a math test and remind them of the stereotype that women are supposed to be bad at math, that makes them really anxious and that makes them fulfill that stereotype. So it could be kind of the same case if someone tells you something about being too warm. But there's research that also shows that it's actually really easy to create in theory to create stereotype lift They call it on the other hand, which is just telling someone this isn't diagnostic of your ability. That allows women who are originally like really good at math to do just as well as they normally should. I think those stereotypes are changing. And I think an interesting thing about the literature, although Tessa mentioned that these stereotypes haven't really changed, but one thing that has happened in the literature is that this effective stereotype threat for women and math hasn't replicated. So it hasn't replicated in, I think, a German and Dutch sample. And lately it hasn't replicated in the US. And some people claim that that's because, you know, social psychology is having a replication crisis and say like, this is bullshit. This never happened. But I actually think that it's probably because those things are changing. Although Tessa's research might suggest otherwise, but I actually don't feel the way that you do. I, and this might come from me never having had an issue. I think a lot of like changing of behaviors and feeling threatened is when you learn that you get a punishment if you behave a certain way, right? And I feel like I've never been punished for being warm or for having like certain, I guess you'd call them feminine qualities, but I don't really like that term, but for being like very social. And I feel like I put a lot of of effort into trying to be like overtly enthusiastic and nice, especially in emails. Like my emails have like way too many exclamation marks, but I've never had any negative feedback from doing that. And it feels more not authentic, I guess, whatever authenticity means for me not to be acting that way. But I think an important thing to know also is that Beth is in a much more kind of STEMI and bro-y place in a way than I am because she's in a philosophy department and does more also computationally heavy research. 
I also so. want to be clear that where I'm at now, I love <laughs> just yeah. so that's clear. This was like past experiences. And now I'm in an environment where I do feel like I can be a hundred percent myself. And what's been really nice is being in that environment. My work has really improved. So mm-hmm. now I'm in a place where I don't feel like I have to tone down at all. I mean, I hate even using the phrase tone down, but that's how I really felt. And now I'm in a place where I don't feel like I have to do that at all. I can walk into the room and be 100% who I want to be. And now you can just see my work has just improved. And mm-hmm. there's been no because I'm being more warm or loving towards people now, you know, my my research isn't as good. If, if anything, it's the opposite because I'm not stressed about trying to control that at the same time as trying to focus on work, you know? Yeah. There's also interesting work about stereotype threat that shows that when people feel threatened, that they actually have a different so-called level of control. So they're focusing basically on different things. So if you're threatened, if you think there's a snake in your apartment, probably going to be focused on finding the snake and vigilant about the snake, right? So you're going to be focused on like, are people judging me because I'm a woman and not focusing and not being able to zoom out to the big picture details. And there's research that shows that when you successfully take away some of that social identity threat, that people do better in school and they're able to zoom out and they're able to not feel like everything that happens that's negative is a reflection of who they are and their belonging in research too. I think when you feel that your personality is wrong or the way you're behaving is wrong, then if your work has any kind of mistake, which everyone's work does, no one is perfect. We constantly need to learn and improve from our stuff, but it feels more intense because it feels like it's more of a tack. I don't know. It's strange on who you are. Whereas if you're accepted, then it feels like your work is kind of separate to you. And it's not when I'm getting come like when that when I'm oh you could improve your work this way it's not to do with like who I am it's to do with my work and it feel I'm like better at receiving feedback now because I don't feel like I'm being attacked yeah there's that's actually exactly what so Claude Steele who did this research this original 90s research on stereotype threat he does work on self-affirmation as well which is this process where you just get people to affirm their values so it doesn't even have to be things that they're great at but it can be like It can be something like, oh, I think I'm a good friend or like I really value my religion. I really value my family and spending time with my family. I think I'm a good son. And being able to zoom out of things, that allows people to do exactly what you said. So to decouple the immediate threats that they have in their environment from their identity and therefore from their belonging in a specific setting. And they've done, they did this research that I read, I had to read recently for a class that kind of blew my mind where they did this in a group of Latino middle schoolers. And they had them do this intervention throughout the year and their grades improved. And that lasted even for some of them until high school. So just having that kind of affirmation, lifting that threat, because it really creates these negative feedback loops, right? Where you're like, I'm terrible and I don't Mm -hmm. belong here. And then that screws you over for the next day. You're going to be more threatened the next day and you're probably not going to do as well. And there's evidence that at least in 2010 when the study was run, that over middle school, Latino students' grades go down Mm -hmm. probably because of this threat that they're having. But if you're able to lift that and decouple that, as you were saying, then there's really surprisingly long-lasting improvements. That's really cool. So we've kind of talked about this in terms of how to address your own biases, but... Mm -hmm. Because the NLP stuff is kind of like a reflection of 
where society is. Do you think that this work also informs the fact that perhaps if we were to get in more media that is less biased, that that would allow for changes to happen? Do you feel like you have any data that speaks to that or would it just be like speculation? Currently speculation, but also in the works in terms of data. So yeah, it's basically the biggest question facing the computer science and social psychology collaborations right now, which is the relationship between these massive language inputs and actual attitudes or actual human behavior. And we can get towards that relatively simply as we are doing right now in our ongoing projects of the relationship at an aggregate level. How do changes in attitudes that we measure through Project Implicit, for instance, track alongside changes in, say, the biases in newspapers across the past 20 years or the biases in Reddit across the past 20 years? And we're doing that right now, so I can give you an update in a year or <laughs> when those data are finally out. But that's sort of that's that's one question, which is sort of how do these two things relate to each other at a structural or at a macro level? But I think the equally interesting and perhaps even the more sort of relevant for intervention question is if we were to change someone's media consumption and we were to show that quantitatively and you know give them a new diet of books, basically. Could we then see corresponding changes in that individual's attitudes? And I think right now that stands as a million-dollar question for researchers. There is some early indication that it should be the case. It should work. So there was a really cool recent paper where they took Fox News viewers, paid them to watch CNN for a month, and then measured their attitudes. And they found that there was attitude change. Basically, In line with this idea that if you change your media consumption, you change your diet, you go from Fox News to CNN, then you should have a corresponding change in your attitudes. You know, it's it's an early study. Who knows if it replicates across many different groups and across time and across all these other things. But it's enough evidence for us to kind of continue to advance this idea that media does have an influence on your mind. So in the gender stereotype stuff, you mentioned that there quite robust gender stereotypes that persisted. Mm -hmm. But you've also looked at how racial stereotypes have changed over time using the same methods. So I was wondering if you could discuss that study and some of its main findings. So this was the second big paper building off of these methods. Once we sort of shown the validation in the gender stereotype domain for these particular child corpora, we asked, okay, cool, could we do that same method, but look at data now across 200 years continuously in book text for 14 different social groups. So we we tried to do this whole big expansion and it ended up being like thousands and thousands of lines of code, but it was very fun. And the key takeaways there are, are twofold. One, that we looked at different sort of metrics of stereotype change. One being this more sort of surface level change in the top traits that we associate with groups. And then the second one being more latent dimensions of sort of the underlying meaning of those traits in terms of how positive or negative those traits were. And so one of the first main findings is that when it comes to the sort of turnover in the traits themselves, there's actually a lot of change over time for most group targets that we look at. And this aligns with the fact that, you know, we can go from calling a group lazy to calling a group helpless 200 years later. And on the surface, Sure, we've changed in the kind of stereotype, but when we look one layer lower to the kind of latent meaning of what those traits actually reflect, there's actually much less change because both lazy and helpless are negative in their representation. And so we found that in general, there was this kind of dissociation 
between this more surface level turnover, surface level change in the content of traits and these more latent, persistent undercurrents over time across 200 years. The second key distinction that we saw was between the types of groups we were looking at. So we looked at more racial and ethnic related groups, so Irish and Black and, and Asian and Native American, as well as more non-racial groups, so old, young, men, women, fat, thin, and so on. And those non-racial groups, so gender and age, had changed way less than our racial and our ethnic groups. And that's really interesting for a number of reasons, including relating to these old theories, or I shouldn't say old, but theories from the 1990s, in which Jim Sidanius proposed that these kinds of racial and ethnic groups are much more culturally constructed. They're kind of what he would call these arbitrary sets. And that's because basically for a long time in our histories, we didn't use race to divide groups. That's a much more recent thing that we use to divide groups based on their resources and those kinds of things. Whereas gender and age and social class have been really longstanding divisions that we use across historical societies to divide labor, to divide you know, placement of people in different villages. And so they should be much more stable across history just because they have so much relevance to the kind of way that we've structured our society. Whereas race and ethnicity being a little bit more culturally constructed, a little bit more culturally malleable should be showing more change over time. And so he also found that sort of general conclusion that these racial and ethnic groups have changed more than others. I'm not sure what the yeah. causal chain is, but is right. part of that also what we were talking about before with the fact that for some of these groups, there's just been a lot more racial protests about, oh, we shouldn't be calling Black people lazy. And then is it just kind of a protection of the social order still to have that transform into something like helpless? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, yes. So in our most recent paper that's currently being revised on my other screen right now, <laughs> we are looking at some of those factors of frequency of how often we talk about a group or how much division there is in the way that that group is talked about across society. And that does seem to be a, a key predictor of whether or not that group is going to change in these kinds of like 100 years of, of text. So I definitely think that like frequency of discussion or the kinds of like intensity with which we approach a group in terms of protests and those kinds of things, that will have an effect on producing greater change. It be determined exactly how much that contributes above and beyond all the other features that we've already talked about in terms of the degree to which that group is, you know, more body related versus more demographic related, the more it relates to things that are controllable versus non-controllable. But I think, again, these methods are the first quantitative step that we can take to actually try to partial out some of that variance. And were there any groups that actually did have a flip in terms of positivity or negativity? Like I'm thinking Asian Americans 200 years ago were seen as very low status, mm -hmm. like more kind of associations with dirtiness, which I guess has kind of come back yeah. during COVID. These really different associations to what we see now, which is more of a mechanistic dehumanization where it's like, oh, mm -hmm. you guys are so good at math and maybe more robotic, but really high competence, which I think is really different to 200 years ago. Was that reflected in the data? And were there any other groups where there was something similar, where there was a really big shift? Mm -hmm. So the representation of poor changed in valence. It was actually the only one that became more positive over time. The rest of the groups that did change in valence, and there were only five out of the 14 groups, generally moved towards more negative representations over time. 
none of them actually flipped, interestingly enough, like went from a positive representation to a negative representation over time. Generally, it was like they kind of started out as already a little bit negative and just became more negative over time. Yes. Another positive finding for you to take away. <laughs> but the other really interesting thing that you mentioned, right, is not just the valence of the kind of like Asian American stereotype to take that as an example, which might be quite stable over time, as we are seeing in our data. But there's that additional dimension of the content itself going from in the early 2000s, in our data, often represented in terms of like Orientalism and mysticism and an interesting sort of mixed valence of reverence, but also othering. And then now being the top associates, when we look at the words, are often actually like a lot of cultural connotations. So things like chow mein or jade or, you know, words that are referring to the group more factually in terms of the things that they're just associated with in our culture, rather than necessarily to do with their placement in terms of traits or adjectives. So, you know, there's a lot of richness when you start to look beyond just reducing it to valence to actually what are all of these content related dimensions that it's changed across. So it's the idea of mysticism or orientalism that's fallen out. But now we've got all these new food related or jade related words that come online that I think Asian American scholars, people studying Asian American history will be much better equipped to try and understand all those really rich qualitative data. But it's now all openly available for people to make those inferences based on each of these 14 groups and how they've changed in these really unique, contentful ways. The final question that we get people to answer is, what are the things that you're really excited about, which you have been hinting at during this <laughs> whole interview? Mm -hmm. So much is next. I'm so glad I have my entire career ahead of me to continue to address these questions. I think for me, the biggest question is really triangulating across these methods and across the real world. So right now, and you kind of hinted that, at this in some of your questions of right now as a social psychologist, I've so often been trained of like thinking in the lab and thinking about attitudes as the be all end all of what we're interested in. But attitudes have relationships to behaviors as well as to our culture. And so trying to understand and triangulate how attitudes change, how that trickles into behavioral change, and how both of those might be influenced by cultural change to begin with and media change and, and changes in our language and our rhetoric. And so to me, triangulating across those three pieces of data, it's such a massive undertaking, but I think one that we are beginning to have the methods to really understand deeply. Thank you so much, Tessa. Yes. It was such a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Mm -hmm.